invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And if you're visiting with us, we've been working our way uh, for a good amount of time now through the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four Gospel records. And we've come now toward the end, and we are officially in the Passion Narrative, as it's called, the narrative of the suffering and death of Christ as we come here to Mark 14. And our text tonight will be Mark 14, 26 to 31. Let me remind you of the setting. It's the night of our Lord's betrayal, which he's already announced that Judas would betray him. He did not say that by name, but he said, one of you, they were eating there a private meal in an upper room in Jerusalem. It's during a final Passover meal in particular, and Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. And then we saw last time that solemn and yet glorious promise of verse 25, having instituted the supper, Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then we come to our text. And let's read that, beginning at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Let's again seek the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your word that you have spoken to us in the scriptures. And we pray as we open them again tonight that you would help us, that you would send your spirit that you would help us to understand and all of us to receive your word by faith. We ask that Christ would be magnified. We pray that sinners would be saved and that your people would be sanctified. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Passover celebration had its several customs and traditions, and some of them were of divine origin. They could point back to the Old Testament scriptures and say, this is why we do this when we celebrate the Passover. But others originated with this or that Jewish rabbi. And one of the rabbinical traditions was the singing of a collection of Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, which is known as the Hallel. That's a word meaning praise related to hallelujah or sometimes called the Egyptian Hallel, this collection of psalms. So Psalm 113 and 114 by tradition were sung at one part of the Passover meal. 
And then Psalms 115 to 118 were sung toward the end of the Passover meal. That was the custom. And it was also the custom that one person at the table, at this Passover meal, would be chanting the text of the psalm. And with each half line of the psalm, the others would say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So that when we look at our text, Mark 14, they're enjoying this Passover meal, the final Passover meal that they're going to have together. And when Mark tells us that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn at the conclusion of that meal, he likely means that they sang the second part of the Hallel, Psalms 115 to 118. So if you think of that, as they go out of the city, out of Jerusalem, and they again go to the Mount of Olives, it was Psalm 118 that was probably fresh in their minds, having just sung these words. And let me read those words, the last part of Psalm 118, which was likely the conclusion of this meal. We read verse 25 of Psalm 118, save now I pray, and we get Hosanna from that, save now I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they probably would have said, hallelujah. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. God is the Lord and so on. And he gave, he has given us light Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Hallelujah. So that was likely what they had sung together, the last thing they had sung or chanted together as they are leaving the upper room and going to the Mount of olives. You might recognize as I'm reading those words and you're listening to them, you might recognize some of those words from a previous text in Mark when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem in his final week that we call Passion Week and the crowd was shouting out words from Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. As he's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, they're shouting these words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that was at the beginning of the week. That was Sunday. We've now come to the end of the week, and our text tonight brings us right to the edge of Jesus' suffering and his death. We could say the hour, the appointed hour has finally come. And there's much to see in this brief text. There's much to learn here. But first, we need to spend a few moments trying to understand it. To better understand this account, which is not just about Peter's denial. So what I want us to do first is to Try to enter into the text and understand its main features. So we'll be looking mainly at verses 27 to 31. So some of the main features here of our text. And what we see is a dialogue between Jesus and the 11 disciples that are remaining with him. But especially a dialogue with Peter. And we'll see this exchange here. And it might have taken place as they're walking. So as they have left Jerusalem, 
and they're going to the Mount of Olives, which wasn't far. It was about a 20-minute walk. So it might be as they're crossing the Kidron Valley and going out to the Mount of Olives that Jesus is having this discussion with his disciples. Now it was dark, and Jesus is the one to begin the discussion. And what we see first is a prediction, a general prediction made by Jesus of the stumbling and of the scattering of the disciples that would take place that very night, not long from this time that Jesus speaks these words. So we see this look again at the text in verse 27, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. You will all be made to stumble. He had said that one of them would betray him. That was just spoken in the upper room. But now he's saying that all of them will be made to stumble. It's translated in different ways. The King James, all of you will be offended. And then many translations today, all of you will fall away this night. The word here originally had to do with being caught in a trap entrapped, and then a further meaning developed over time of being caused to stumble and to fall. And here, spiritually speaking, to fall with regard to faith, all of you will be made to stumble. You will fall. And we've seen Jesus use this before. And let me give you two examples from Mark. When he is explaining the parable of the sower, This is back in chapter four. In explaining the parable of the sower, Jesus is explaining the rocky soil, the seed that is sown on stony ground, and he uses this same word, and we see this in Mark 4, 17. And they have no root in themselves, and they so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. That's the same word. So there's pressure, there's persecution for the word's sake, and they stumble. And then later, Jesus uses the word in chapter 9 when he gives a very strong warning against causing the stumbling and the downfall of a little one. Mark 9, 42, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. Now in those two examples, Mark 4 and Mark 9, it seems that Jesus is speaking of a spiritual stumbling that is fatal, a stumbling that is final. Because in the soil, it was only the good soil that produces, that produces fruit. And what he says in such strong language in Mark 9, this stumbling leads to an ultimate downfall. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking for them about a stumbling that will be final and fatal, as was Judas stumbling, a final falling away. But they will stumble It will be a very great stumbling and a downfall of all of the disciples that very night, and especially Peter, as we will see. So they will fall. It will be very great. They will be overcome by what is very soon to happen to Jesus, as if suddenly caught in a trap. 
And you know how that is if you've set a trap and you happen to catch a mouse or something, it's sudden. And that's what happens. It's gonna come upon them suddenly and they'll be caught. Or if you're suddenly tripped up, they're going to be tripped up, they're gonna stumble and fall this night because of Jesus. So in a moment of great weakness, they will forsake Jesus, their shepherd, and they will all run. And we see that later in Mark 14. And what are they doing? They're seeking to put a distance between them and Jesus. As they're looking at Jesus and he's being taken by lawless hands and he's going to be tried, he's going to be killed. They see Jesus and they want to put a distance between Jesus and themselves. They run, they flee, lest what happened to Jesus happen to them. So one man rightly says that their loyalty will not be able to stand the strain of coming events. All of them will be made to stumble that night. Now notice that Jesus grounds the prediction in what has been written. And that's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures, specifically Zechariah chapter 13. Look at verse 27, the second part of verse 27. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, and then he quotes the scripture, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Or we could translate it, I will strike down the shepherd. He's not just talking about the shepherd, that's Christ, is gonna receive this blow, but it's a fatal blow. I will strike down, slay the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered from the shepherd. If we look at Zechariah 13, seven, and we're not going to turn there tonight, but if you look there, it's clear that the one who will strike the shepherd is the Lord himself. So we read, Jesus is just quoting a portion of Zechariah 13, 7, but we read there, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord is speaking, and he's speaking to the sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. And then he says, strike. It's a command given to the sword. By the Lord, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's vivid imagery of a shepherd being struck down and the sheep that were under the care of the shepherd then scattering as in a panic and in fear. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus applies it to them and we see that it is exactly fulfilled that night. They're going to all run away. Even before he struck down at his arrest in the garden, they all run away. They all flee from him. Although there's one, Peter, who will follow him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. So it will appear for a brief while that Peter at least will not stumble like the rest. And at this time, we'll see here in a moment, Jesus, G, um, Peter certainly believes that he will not forsake Jesus like all of the rest. He's quite confident of himself. So that's the first thing. There's this general prediction that they're all going to stumble. They're all going to be scattered. But notice that this 
prediction is followed immediately by an encouraging promise, beginning at verse 28. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. But after I have been raised, there's great hope in these words. First, we see it simply in the fact that Jesus is speaking again of his resurrection. Yes, the shepherd will be struck down, but he says, after I have been raised. So there's hope in there. He's speaking of his victory. It will not be a a striking down that will leave him in the grave. He will rise again. But then he goes on and he gives them the assurance that not only will he rise again, but also that even though they have failed him or they will fail him, he will not fail them, but will actually gather them again. And he will go before them like a shepherd leading them to Galilee. He will go before them. You think of the words of John 10, 4, when Jesus is speaking of the shepherd, the true shepherd, and he says, when the shepherd brings, his, brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So you see what Jesus is doing. As soon as he gives this prediction that all of them would fail him that night, he says, but when I am raised from the dead, I will again gather my scattered sheep. I will gather you and I will again go before you as your shepherd. So it's an encouraging promise that we have in verse 28. You remember after his resurrection, the women who discover the empty tomb are ordered by the angel there with these words, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. That's in chapter 16. So yes, Christ the shepherd is going to be struck down. And then all of the sheep, his disciples, they will be scattered. But when he is raised up, they will be regathered under his leadership and care once again. You could put it another way. They will stumble and fall greatly, but Christ will restore them. And I was reminded of the words of Psalm 23. He restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus is going to restore them after his resurrection. But now continuing in the text here, the general prediction that they will all be made to stumble, they'll all be scattered. It gets more specific now and it gets very personal. And here we have the prediction of Peter's denial, which we find in verses 29 to 31. And you'll notice that Peter brings this upon himself. And he does so by his self-confident rejection of what Jesus has just said. He essentially is saying, no, Jesus, you're wrong. I will not stumble. Look at verse 29. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Yet not I, Jesus, Jesus responds to this with those solemn and weighty words of verse 30. Jesus said to him, Assuredly or truly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. The crowing of a rooster, it's an interesting detail, isn't it? And it's a detail that's actually preserved in all four gospels, not just in the prediction of the denial of Peter, but in its fulfillment. They all say that there was the crowing of a rooster. So it's an important detail here. But only Mark records the extra detail about the rooster crowing twice. He says before the rooster crows twice. And that probably would have been first the crowing around midnight and then the crowing just before dawn. There's no contradiction here. It was enough to simply say before the rooster crows and everyone would have understood the meaning of that to be before the sun comes up the crowing at the dawning of the day. So what Jesus is saying here is that before this night is over, Peter, not only will you be caused to stumble and scatter, but you will actually deny me this very night. Now, why does Mark give this detail? We don't exactly know, but it's believed by many that behind the gospel of Mark is the eyewitness account of Peter, Peter himself. So it makes sense that this little detail that others would have said, well, it's enough just to speak of the rooster crowing. But Peter, this was burned on his memory. He remembered these words. And so he gave to Mark these words. Jesus said specifically, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And as we will see at the end of chapter 14, the crowing of a rooster will be that which reminds Peter. He hears it and he remembers what Jesus says, but only when he hears the crowing of the rooster. So Jesus is a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He's giving Peter an audible prophetic sign, we might say, something that would jog his memory and even be an instrument in leading him to repentance at a time when he's greatly fallen. So we see the kindness and the wisdom of Jesus in speaking these exact words, which seem rather strange to Peter. Well, Peter's undaunted. He's brought this upon himself. Jesus brings those solemn words of verse 30 and says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, not just once, three times. He's undaunted by this, and he proceeds to even more emphatically reject the predictions of Jesus by declaring his absolute allegiance to Jesus, and even unto death. And you'll note that his words are echoed by all of the others. It's not just Jesus, uh, not sorry, not just Peter that is quite confident that he won't reject Jesus or that he won't abandon Jesus, but all of them were. So look at verse 31. But he spoke more vehemently or emphatically, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. So that's something of the text. Seek to understand it just a little bit more. But what I want to do now is to consider some truths and lessons from this account some truths and lessons to take to heart. And there's three main things that are highlighted here in this text. Three main things, and I'm sure there's more, but these are three main things for us to learn and take to heart here in this text. And the first thing is the glory of Christ. 
the radiant glory of Christ. Remember in John 1, where it says that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Those who had been with Jesus, they said, we have beheld his glory. We see his glory in this text as he's coming upon his hour of suffering and death. Now, the glory of Christ is like a jewel. It has many different facets, many different faces. And we see a few of those faces in our text. And not least in the glimmer of his divine nature that we get here. In this very specific knowledge of what would happen. Not just that they all would be scattered. Somebody might have studied the Old Testament and said, ah, I know this text in Zechariah and I can apply this to the Messiah and I can see that this would happen. Jesus' knowledge is beyond a right application of scripture. He knows that Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows twice. So there's a glimmer there of his divine nature, of a knowledge that only he could have as the son of God. But we see here, as we're speaking of his glory, that we could speak of the poise of Jesus, a remarkable poise. And poise is balance, basically. Composure, the dignity of manner that we see in Christ as he's approaching his suffering and his death. We see this and Jesus. And we should note, it's not at odds with grief and pain and the trouble that was in his heart at this time as he's announcing his betrayer. And then as we see him in, in Gethsemane and we see the agony in Gethsemane. So this poise and this composure that we see that's part of the glory of Christ isn't at odd with these emotions, these real emotions of pain, grief, and sorrow. So there is a lesson here. Godly poise or self-composure isn't stoical. It's not a result of suppressing emotions. And we've considered the emotional life of Christ. As a true man, he had a true emotional life, and it was perfect and sinless. And he's not without emotion here. He's not going to the cross in a stoical manner. He's not composed because he's just pretending like this isn't painful for him. You understand what I mean there? But we do ask the question, well, what's behind this poise? If it's not just ignoring the pain and the suffering that lies ahead and even what he's experiencing now. What is behind this composure of Christ? Well, at least two things are clear in the text. And first is that he knew that, was what, that what was taking place was taking place according to Scripture, what had been written. What was about to take place and what was already taking place had been written. So that's one thing that we could point to here for what is behind his composure. It is written, says Jesus in verse 27, and then look up to verse 21. He had said something very similar. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. He knows what has been written and he is convinced that it must be. He knows what must happen to him. 
Now, very closely related to this is the second thing, and that is that Jesus knew that his father was directing all things. He was directing all of the events that were even now unfolding. The lawless hands that would take him, he understood, he could see behind that and understand that it's the hand of God, the hand of his father, directing all of these things according to his divine purpose and his plan, his good plan. So Jesus understands all this. He understands that even though he will be struck down by lawless men, he knows that ultimately God will be the one who strikes him down. I will strike the sheep, remember? Or sorry, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I, who is the I? Those are the words of the Lord. This is the father saying, I will strike my son. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Christ, the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him. And then he goes on to say, that was verse 6 of Isaiah 53, but then in verse 10, it pleased the Lord, or it was the will of the Lord, to bruise him. He has put him to grief. So Jesus understood this. And this explains his poise, his composure. Now, if we too would have a godly composure, and again, a composure that's not stoical, but if we would have this Christ-like godly composure, especially in the midst of our trials, then we need to follow in the steps of Jesus, who was looking to the word of God, who was trusting in the word of God, was submitting to the word of God, was resting himself in the word of God and governing his thoughts by what had been written. So we need to know the scriptures and have the scriptures in our hearts and bring them to our minds if we would have a godly composure. One man says that the scripture is the rock on which all spiritual stability will be built. And then we also, like Christ, must learn to see God's hand and God's purposes in all of our life, in everything, in the good and in the bad. So in all of our trials to see God's hand so that we understand it's not by random chance that we're suffering. But as it's been said, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it so well, nothing is happening to us by chance but by God's fatherly hand. That's the doctrine of God's providence. He's guiding all things. He is in control of the whole universe and he's even governing all the details of your life. So if you know that and you hold fast to that, to the word of God and its promises and the fact that God is sovereign, he is working out all things, nothing happens to you by chance. You see how you can be composed even when Everyone is looking at you and saying, how in the world can you be composed in such circumstances? So we learn something from Christ's composure. So we see his glory. We see it here again, though, in his determination. There's determination here. And it's a determination to do his father's will. 
It's a determination to be obedient, even to the point of death. We've already seen this before. Back in chapter 10, Jesus had just then had started telling them what must happen to him. He must suffer and he must die. And then he's making his way to Jerusalem. And there was something about the way he was going to Jerusalem, something about his determination, apparently, that the disciples saw. And it says that they were amazed and they were afraid. Jesus has set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem with full knowledge of what would happen. And here, as he gets to the hour, as it approaches, he doesn't back away. He is not deterred by knowing the time has come. And in fact, that he's on his way to the garden where he knows that he will be betrayed and arrested. He continues. He moves forward to Gethsemane and he moves forward to Calvary. So there is this determination of Christ to obey. And it's all the more glorious because it's not supported by ignorance. Some of us can rush into something Maybe you've had this happen before, some exciting new opportunity, and you rush into it, and then it proves not to be what you thought, and it's perhaps one of the biggest trials you've gone through. Had you known what you would go through, you wouldn't have rushed into it in the same way. Jesus isn't rushing forward in ignorance, but in complete knowledge, with a determination to obey the will of his Father who sent him. So he knows the suffering, he knows the death, he knows he'll be betrayed, he knows he'll be abandoned. He knows that he will be denied three times strongly by Peter. He knows that he will be mocked, scourged, spat upon, and killed. He knows all of this, and yet he is determined to move forward. And this certainly reveals to us something of the glory of Christ's love. The glory of his love we see here in our text and in all the final hours of Christ. And it's a love that we've heard recently is beyond our knowledge, Ephesians 3. It passes understanding. It's beyond our comprehension. You can't wrap your mind around it. But we look at it and we should say, what love that Christ would be so determined to lay down his life for sinners, sinners such as us. And sinners whose love for him is so weak and inconsistent. As we consider this text then, and then several more to come in the coming weeks and months, my prayer is that God would help us, that prayer of Paul, to know the love of Christ more and more which passes knowledge, that as we're studying the scriptures, as we've come into the passion narrative of Christ, that each time we look at a different text, that God would stir up our understanding and help us to know the love of Christ and then to love him even more. And then also, some of you here, if you're not a Christian, you come across something like this. You see such great love, love that is beyond comprehension. You look elsewhere in the Bible. You see Christ laying down his life. You see this love. And let me, let me urge you to consider this love. And my prayer for you is that this love would draw you to Christ, that you would see how great a love there is beyond any other love in this world. Love divine, all loves excelling, we sing. 
no greater love. And so let that draw you to the Savior, that you would come to him in faith, seeing his love for sinners, for sinners, and that you would find rest for your souls. So we see here the glory of Christ, his poise or his composure. We see his determination and we see his love. All of this, these are different facets of his glory, his radiant glory. But what we see here next is in stark contrast to the glory of Christ, and that's the weakness and the failure of his disciples. We're not going to dwell long on this because we've seen it before, in fact, multiple times, and we will see it again. So we'll have an opportunity to consider the weakness and the failure of the disciples. But their weakness, we need to recognize, it's not just a physical weakness. Weakness of the body, even weakness of the mind, this is part of being human. So we know that Jesus, as a true man, was hungry, he thirsted, he got tired, he slept. I'm sure he knew what it was like to have mental exhaustion. And none of that was sinful. There was nothing sinful in the humanity of Christ. So there is a weakness that is physical and, the, and a weakness that is not sinful. But that's not, we're, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we see at all. What we see is a moral weakness of fallen creatures and even redeemed people. These, these are true believers, and yet we see how great they fall into sin. What Jesus predicts, and even we see it in Peter's responses, what Jesus predicts, and then the response of Peter with so much pride and self-confidence, it reveals to us a moral weakness in these men. And they're later going to prove to be true and faithful followers of Christ. They will later even lay down their lives for Christ. Several of them, if not most of them, died as martyrs. But right now, they're going to scatter. Right now, they're going to abandon Christ for a time disowning him. But this point... In, in, the, in the narrative, we see a great moral failure in their stumbling and in Peter's denying of Christ three times. So as we look at this, we very obviously need to be aware of our weakness and beware of the kind of confidence, sinful self-confidence that Peter had when he said, no, Jesus, not I. This is something to beware of, self-confidence. All of them, though, were confident, saying, with Peter, we will be strong, we will not abandon you. You'll notice that Peter was quite sure that the others might stumble. He said, Jesus, even if all of them will, you can be sure that I won't. So it's not just that he's confident in himself, but he's looking down on others, so we need to learn from this. It's disgusting in the eyes of God. One man says, as Peter had distinguished himself by boasting, so he was to distinguish himself by failure, so that others, as well as he, might learn distrust of natural strength. That's one of the reasons this is here for us, that we might learn distrust of natural strength. 
There is a sense in which we need to embrace our weakness. Not completely, of course, not as an excuse for sin. We ought not for even a second to excuse our sin and say, well, I'm just weak, I'm just sinful, what do you expect? No, but we need to embrace, in a sense, our weakness and realize the very real danger that all of us are in of stumbling and falling and even perhaps sinning like Peter this great and grievous sin. We need to understand that danger and our very real need of the power and of the grace of God each day to preserve us and to keep us faithfully moving forward in the way. So we shouldn't respond to this sort of account with pride and self-confidence and even scorn and say, well, how could they do this to Jesus? If I were there, or to think anything for a second like that, But we ought to see this and say, I see my own sinful heart in this. I see my own weakness in this. I'm getting a snapshot of what true believers even can fall into if we're not guarding our hearts with all diligence. So a text like this ought to cause us to be even more diligent in the guarding of our hearts, to be even more constant in watching and in praying, to be putting on the whole armor of God that we might stand firm against the wiles of the devil, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. So what we have here, as we're reminded of our weakness, is an encouragement to go to one who says, I will give you my strength. Paul in Ephesians 6, as he's saying, put on the whole armor of God, he begins it all by saying, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. He's not saying be strong in you, be strong in your own might, and stand against the devil. That's the way to fall. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The little song we sing, we are weak, he is strong. So we look to the one who is strong, recognizing, even embracing to an extent our weakness so that it drives us to Christ in faith, to look to his power and grace. So we need to remember these things for ourselves, but I want to say, too, that we should remember this for others and especially for one another as we're here. We need to graciously make allowance for this fact that we are weak and that we are prone to fall and sin. And that means we're going at times to fail one another. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to disappoint each other. Some of us might stumble and fall in very great ways, and we might be tempted to to look down at them and not seek to deal with them in the way that we ought to deal with them. What do we need? This should encourage us to be patient with others, to understand, yes, we're all weak. God is still working in all of us. Look at these disciples who had been with Jesus and how they fell. So we need to be patient with each other. We need to pray for each other, to be strengthened, pray for each other, to press on, pray for each other, to put on that whole armor of God. All of the things that we see in Scripture that we need, pray, pray for one another, and also encourage each other. Now, as we leave this point, I want us to remember, as we're thinking about our failure, the disciples' failure, remember that there's one who never failed, think of that, never failed in any way, 
Christ in any way at all. He never failed, and also, though we fail him, will never fail us. But he's a good and he's a faithful shepherd. So we've seen the glory of Christ. We've seen the weakness and the failure of the disciples in contrast to that. But I want to conclude with a third thing here that is highlighted, and that's the grace of God. The grace of God we see here in our text. And in the first place, the very fact that God would make a way at all to reconcile sinners to himself. Weak, stumbling sinners. That he would make a way at all and send his own son into this world. That he would not keep his son from going to the cross. He wouldn't spare him. He would give him up for us all. So we are reminded of that as we look at the Son of God here, going to do what the Father sent him to do, to save sinners, to reconcile sinners to himself. But also that his son Jesus would be so willing and so determined to go all the way to the cross in his obedience, laying down his life for weak sinners. And for those who even would very soon forsake him and deny him, he's laying down his life for them. He's not deterred at all by this. And why is that? Why is Jesus not deterred by the sinfulness of his disciples? He knew what was in men, not just his disciples. It's because sinners he came to save. That was precisely his mission. So he presses on. So we have an encouragement here. There's no sinner too great. No sinner ought to despair. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you say, well, you just don't know how bad I am. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the way that I've fallen. And I would say to you, you don't know the grace of God and how great it is. You don't know the love of Christ and how great it is. That's what we see here. So come to Christ. Here is this great, amazing grace of God, and we see it here. It's beyond our comprehension. But I want us finally to consider that each of these men, including Peter, would be regathered. We saw that earlier in that promise of verse 28. After I've risen, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Yes, they're going to be scattered, but they're going to be regathered, and each of them also restored. And in a special way, Peter is going to be restored by Jesus. And not just that, they're not just going to be restored and say, well, because of what you've done, you're going to live a very mediocre Christian life. And you're not, I'm not going to let you really serve me. They go on to faithfully serve Christ, even at the expense of their own lives. So they would get to the point where they would truly say, yes, I would rather die than forsake Christ, than to renounce Christ. So that should encourage us. Is it not encouraging to see this? That those who had so greatly failed and sinned by God's grace were restored and went on faithfully to the end. It should encourage us that God's grace is so amazing, not just because it saves sinners, but because by God's grace, sinners are sanctified. And that means made more and more like Christ. Day by day, week by week, year by year, we are made more and more like Christ. Pride increasingly turned to humility. 
Cowardice increasingly turned into boldness. Love of self increasingly turned into a love for God and a love for others. And on and on we could go. This is the way God works by grace. So we end with this reminder of the grace of God and how he works to save and to sanctify sinners. All of our weakness, all of our sin, all of our need is perfectly met by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, perfectly met. God freely bestows his kindness. He freely bestows his love upon us so that he might make us trophies of his grace for his glory. Amen. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you have shown us so clearly the Savior. And we look forward to the coming weeks as we consider the passion of Christ. And we do pray that we would understand more and more the love of Christ, which is beyond knowledge. Help us to know the love of Christ. Lord, may all here know his love and pray that all here would delight in his love, that there would be some here tonight hearing these words, that they would come to Jesus, that they would be drawn with cords of love to the Savior, that they would be saved from their sins. Lord, we ask that you would do this. We pray that the seed would not be sown and then be snatched away by the enemy. Pray against the distractions that might even now cause these things to go in one ear and out the other, but pray that they would be implanted deeply into every heart and that you would be preparing our hearts as good soil to receive that word in faith and in love. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.